afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 34th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, the subject is COVID-19 and the government response. My guest is Don Kettle. We are streaming on YouTube Live. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter. My Twitter handle is at US of Disaster. That's at US of Disaster. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the COVID calls podcast. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and topics. And as always, please do feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. On Friday, Tomorrow, we're gonna to start two days of labor discussions, tomorrow being May 1st. And tomorrow we're gonna to talk with Eileen Boris, Silvia Federici, and Juliana Feliciano-Reyes. It's just a remarkable uh, collection of scholars and journalists to talk about the many different issues surrounding labor. And on Monday, we're gonna talk about maintenance and COVID-19 with Jessica Meyerson, Lee Vinsel, and Andy Russell. So you wanna catch those two COVID calls for sure. As of today, there are 3,255,454 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 3,094,829 cases yesterday. 1,056,402 of those cases are in the United States, up from 1,004,908 yesterday. There are now a total of 61,857 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 57,812 reported yesterday. I just saw that they reported the greatest single day total of deaths uh, throughout this entire pandemic so far in New Jersey today. Among the many unnecessarily horrible lessons that Americans learned in Hurricane Katrina, one of them was that disasters reveal all of the broken linkages between and among our different layers of government, federal, state, and local. For many Americans following that disaster, and certainly those who were living through it, it was a crash course in the confusing array of powers owned by entities ranging from levy boards to state environmental agencies, all the way up to the Federal Emergency Management Agency. After Katrina, and the august hearings that were held in the Senate, we were assured that government's failures of initiative, and that was actually what they ended up naming their great report, failure of initiative, that these um, failures of initiative not only could be fixed, but that fixing them was actually a great opportunity for American government to finally adapt to the unique challenges of the threats that we faced then and today. Challenges of the environment and keeping environmental quality, climate change, infrastructure maintenance, and even the legacies of segregation, poverty, and disinvestments in justice. Those many things were promised after Katrina, and I think people had every right to expect that an event of that magnitude would lead to reform. But at the core of that moment was a need to actually truly understand where the crucial storehouse of trust in government resides. Is it in mayors, governors, Agency leaders, certainly after Katrina, it wasn't in agency leaders, presidents even. And now here we are again, 
but on a much more vast scale. This is a kind of a disaster at a Katrina level that seems to be occurring across the entire nation simultaneously. And we face the same questions around trust in government. I wanted to talk to an expert who could help me understand these kinds of questions. And so I invited Don Kettle, whom I've known since those days, just after Hurricane Katrina. And I'm sorry that I only seem to talk to Don after terrible things have happened, but that's, that's where we are. But I can't think of anybody better to talk with me about these things today. So let me introduce my guest. Don Kettle is the Sid, Sid Richardson Professor at the LBJ School at the University of Texas at Austin. He previously served as the Dean in the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Volcker Alliance, the Brookings Institution, and the Partnership for Public Service. Don has authored or co-edited, edited or co-edited many books, including Can Governments Earn Our Trust? Little Bites of Big Data for Public Policy, Escaping Jurassic Government, Restoring America's Lost Commitment to Competence, System Under Stress, The Challenge to 21st Century American Democracy, The Next Government of the United States, Why Our Institutions Fail Us, and his most recent uh, wonderful book, the, the Divided States of America, Why Federalism Doesn't Work, which came out just this year. Don, welcome to COVID Calls. Scott, it is so good to be with you today. So I'd like to remind everyone to get your questions in. You get them into the YouTube live chat or you can email them directly to me if you want to throughout the call, my email address, sgk23 at drexel.edu, or you can just put them up on Twitter. That works really well, that's fast, and just tag me at US of Disaster. So um, Don, I've been starting these out by really asking people to um, take us into the situation where they are. I presume from your backdrop that you're in Austin, Texas. Can you tell us a little bit about how things are there? Sure, I'm in Austin right now. It's a gorgeous day here. The temperature is 86, there's not a cloud in the sky, and it is just a tale of two cities in so many ways. On the one hand, you can look out, as, as I can fortunately, over Lady Bird Lake and see people out there in their paddle boards and kayaks having a great all time. Best I can tell, none of them are wearing masks. But on the other hand, the, the streets are virtually deserted. The, people are still not coming back to work. They're, the governor has decided that he's going to begin to try to reopen the economy tomorrow, but there's tension between the state and the local governments about just what that means, about where to do it and how safely to do it where. And so there is this incredible tension between, on the one hand, this yearning to get back to normal, a sense of trying to figure out what the new normal is going to be, and the tension between the state government and the local governments and trying to find ways of managing the risks that are out here. Like so many other places, we have problems with, uh, with illness and, and death in nursing homes that we're still trying to get our arms around. Texas has been relatively spared compared to New York and New Jersey, but still there are these pockets that have started to pop up in rural Texas as well that remind us that nobody escapes on this. How did things go for you in terms of uh, shutting down classes at the LBJ school and, and things on campus? I mean, I, I was an undergraduate at the University of Texas and a graduate student there in my master's study days. And I mean, even on a slow day, the University of Texas is a city into itself. How did things wind down? Yeah, we've got 50,000 students. And all of a sudden we went from 50,000 to a campus that's just a ghost town. And we essentially went from uh, spring break into online teaching uh, almost overnight. I, I was joking that 
universities invented medievalism back 600 years ago, and we've been teaching the same way for 600 years, and we turned that overnight into online teaching. I just, I don't ever remember a set of institutions changing so radically, so fast. And it's been fascinating to have a chance to be able to, to go online. And on the one hand, it's, it's been weird for everybody trying to figure that out. But on the other hand, for, for my class, I'm teaching a class in public management and anybody who's interested in federalism and public management sees it in every nook and cranny of this crisis. And so I've, I've twisted the class without too much effort into an effort to try to help students understand and explore all those different pieces of it. And in addition to that, to bring in some, some guest speakers who have been very much world-class and the kinds of things that we can never get to come to Austin, but easily come dropping into class by means of, of Zoom. And that's really made the teaching so much more fun, I think. Well, I, um, we have so many topics to get to today. And I, I, I want to actually start, I was just before I, we got on this call, um, was alerted to the fact that there's a protest going on, an armed protest going on at the Michigan State House right now. Um, and of course, in, like in so many states, there's debates going on there about the pace of uh, the so-called reopening. And, you know, it made me think that I hadn't seen this much uh, political animus, uh, not any violence that I'm aware of yet, except for the violence of people gathering without their face masks on. But I hadn't seen this much political animus at state houses across the country since the civil rights movement. And you know, you, you have this phenomenal new book, The Divided States of America, and I want to just give a little quote from it. Maybe we can start with this. You say in the book, um, going a little bit against the grain of what we, we seem to think of the federal government being so dominant today, you say the states are becoming more important, not less so. They are increasingly going their own way, and their policy differences are increasingly driving the country apart. And when I saw that what was going on there, in Michigan, and I think about the president's uh, many statements encouraging protesters previously in Minnesota and Michigan. Um, I just thought this 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 statement is so um, crucial right now to think with. So, can you explain, you know, what you were after in this book, and why do you think these policy differences at the state level are driving the country apart? Sure, and a couple things. The first is that. And before beginning this book, I had a conversation with my editor saying, you know, the problem with writing a book on federalism, and it's a topic that nobody really cares about in itself, except for a relatively small handful of academics, except that they bump into federalism every time they turn around and go out the door. And sure enough, that's been the story of what's going on here. I, I set out to try to make an argument about why federalism matters, and it turns out I haven't had to work that hard since. The way in which COVID-19 has rolled out has been a story about the tensions between the federal government and the states and between the states and each other and between state capitals and the mayors. And it, all of this, as it, as it turns out, really explains the way in which the, the story of the United States is being told in the reaction to this. I think the United States stands out in the kind of frictions between the national government and the local governments compared to any other country in the world right now. And it's because at the beginning, the federal government in general and the president in particular uh, just simply decided strategically not to grab hold of it as the problem is a problem. It left individual states to respond. The states that responded first were the ones that tended to have the biggest outbreaks and they tended to be blue states. But then there was a whole collection of states after that that decided to lock down in March. 
Uh, some of them decided not to, and it turns out there are systematic differences between them in the way in which they've responded. The country's now been driven apart into two different kinds of groups, between those who believe this is a big issue that we need to continue working seriously about, and on the other hand, uh, those things that, okay, this may have been overblown, it's the kind of thing we need to get back to normal of, the people trying to stop it from happening are interfering with our rights, and that's leading to enormous frictions within states, and especially between the states and each other. We, we've got uh, this collection of divided states of America, and by understanding the way the states are divided, we can begin to understand the basic problems of strategy we have in this country, figuring out how to, how to deal with this problem. So let's go back in the in the book. You actually start with the in the founding of the country. I think it's worth getting some of this context, and then we'll bring it up and talk more about you know what we are seeing and what we can expect going forward. Um, but you talk about the the sort of fundamental insights. I think particularly of Madison, uh, and two key things that were crucial um, in the founding of the country and the Constitution, and that's the separation of powers and the Federalist structure. Why were those unique, or give us a little bit of context for sort of governance at that time. Why were those unique instruments? The, the basic problem was that Madison had a, an enormous challenge to solve. Uh, we, against all odds, managed to beat the most powerful army in the world. The, the British were driven out. There's no guarantee they were going to stay out. And we had to try to figure out how to put the country together. And the first effort was something it came from the Articles of Confederation, which just didn't work well at all because it turned out the government wasn't strong enough to do anything. And so we had the consensus that we needed to have a kind of U.S. government 2.0 that we needed to launch. And that was the debate around the Constitution. But then the problem of getting the Constitution was, it's clear that we wanted to have a stronger national government. But the states were by no means willing to give up their power, and they certainly weren't willing to give up the power to decide what that government ought to look like to states from other parts of the country. So the northerners didn't trust the southerners, the urbanists didn't trust the people in rural areas. There were incredible frictions. So Madison was trying to figure out how, in the name of all that's blessed and holy, am I going to pull this country together? And so in the constitutions, really, it has to be understood as a, as a tactical document as a way to try to tamp down the, the frictions between the states, which we did in part through the separation of powers, but also through this magical 10th Amendment that says that all powers not given to the federal government are reserved for the states. And so the states insisted as a condition for ratifying the Constitution that first the federal government be powerful, but not too powerful, and that it was clear that the powers in the country that weren't given explicitly to the national government were reserved to the states. That, of course, it had two purposes. It had two consequences. One is it at least allowed ratification of the Constitution. So that got government 2.0 off to a start. But if anybody thought that that apparently explicit language in the 10th Amendment was going to resolve the questions for all time, they were sorely mistaken because we spent the time in the 230 years since trying to battle over just where those boundary lines ought to be drawn. And you can see it now in armed demonstrations outside the State House in Lansing. Clearly, the uh, slavery issue um, was, you know, at the centerpiece of, of that kind of uh, compromise, what we might call a compromise, uh, others would call a, uh, this a sort of fundamental sin at the beginning of the, of the formation of the nation. But, but with the Civil War, and the end of the Civil War in the 19th century, that still didn't resolve 
this sort of challenge of federalism and, and even the prerogatives of individual states or cities to drive their own sort of policy solutions to local problems, right? I mean, what kind of uh, the laying aside the slavery issue, uh, going from the Civil War more forward, what are some of the other sort of key moments where that battle is being played out? Well, it would have seemed that, that the Civil War finally once and for all dealt with that because after all, the North won, slavery was gone, the 14th Amendment was ratified, the principle of equal rights was established, but right on the heels of equal rights was the creation of the separate but equal doctrine, which the states asserted, Southern states in particular, and which, to which the federal government acquiesced. And the, so the idea of state supremacy continued until the Great Depression, and then in the Great Depression, there was an economic crisis that, well, this is not going to work because the states are incapable of responding. So at that point, the federal government rose up with the New Deal to try to provide aid to state and local governments. But even that then didn't fully resolve things because the separate but equal doctrine continued until after World War II. We had the, the decision that finally in Brown versus Board of Education ended segregation, but that only did it, of course, legally, didn't do it functionally in so many parts of the country. That didn't happen until the 60s and the 70s, and one would argue still hasn't today. Then there was the rise of the, the federal government and its power in the 1960s. And at that point, it really seemed we finally have got this figured out. Separate but equal is gone. The federal government is going to insist on equal protection under the law. We're going to have the rise of a strong federal government to fund state and local governments as kind of administrative intermediaries to try to administer programs. We had Medicare, we had Medicaid. We then had a Environmental Protection Act that was passed. And that seemed, it, by the time we got through the 60s and into the 70s, we finally got this figured out. And instead what happened was that yet again, the differences among the states prevented any kind of strong, clear national policy. And so we ended up uh, having continuing battles, which we saw spilling over into the passage of the Affordable Care Act, where the states went in different directions on the administration of, the, of Obamacare, and whether or not they created their own sets of, of exchanges, whether or not they expanded Medicaid. And instead, what's really happened from that time in the 1960s, where it looked like we finally had it resolved, instead what's happened is the differences between the states have gotten large, and they've gotten larger between them. So that the inequalities that we look at in this country have increasingly been the product of the ways in which the states have behaved. So you, you know, the, the timeline you're sketching out um, and this, the long, uh, problem still not solved, obviously, of the long legacy of racial inequality in America. Nevertheless, it seemed that at least from policy perspective, um, some of those issues were finally addressed by the federal government by the 1960s and 19, 1970s. Now there's, in other words, there was just some things states were not going to be allowed to innovate, if you want to call Jim Crow innovation. They were not going to be allowed to innovate in that way any longer. And then you talk about though the, this um, moment that sort of begins in the 60s and 70s where the federal government is though uh, willing to allow a measure of creativity through the form of granting uh, waivers to allow individual states to innovate, say for example, in environmental policy. And you talk about California there. I, and I think that's probably relevant to healthcare too. So can we linger here for a second and talk a little sure. bit about what waivers are and what that means to different states in the 60s and 70s? And let me, let me explore that in two different ways, because uh, I want to come back in a second to talk about how that 
directly affects the decisions over locking down the economies because it turns out there's some interesting patterns that I've been able to, to discover in the last couple of weeks. But uh, the federal government said, okay, what we're going to do is to have a, a clear set of national policy. And the national policy is going to, for example, when it comes to the environment, have well, clean air, clean water standards. We're going to have certain standards when it comes to Medicaid. We're going to have programs that are aimed at trying to eliminate poverty and to try to, try to reform welfare. But some states have said, you know what, we, we've got a better idea. We think, for example, for California, that we have bigger air pollution problems than anybody else. We think we've got strategies that can help reduce air pollution here. What we're going to do is, uh, how, about, how about if you give us the authority to be able to experiment with tougher regulations? So the basic principle of waivers is that the rules of the states have to be at least as tough as the ones that the federal government has, but the federal government will allow waivers to make sure that the level of performance is at least as good and if states think that they can do better, either with the same amount of money or with tighter regulations on their own, go to it. And most, most pieces of federal legislation, including the Clean Air, Clean Water Act, the Medicaid program and others have allowed states waivers to be able to do that. The number of waivers that the state of California has dealing just with air pollution and water pollution runs to more than 78 pages now. I mean, it's, it's a virtual catalog of waivers that they've been able to do to crack down on pollution, pollution sources, to allow the introduction of the catalytic converter, to prevent outdoor barbecuing from open fuel sources and other things like that, which have made dramatic improvements in improving the quality of the air and water in California all through the waiver process. So just when we thought first, okay, we're gonna establish clear national standards. Okay, got that. And we're gonna allow some states to experiment to have tougher standards. Okay, got that too. It turns out that then we end up with growing differences between the states and the way in which they've implemented things. And the Trump administration came in furious with the idea that California was in practice setting national policy Right. having to do with environmental standards because there are waiver standards that created air pollution standards for cars that manufacturers had faced a tough choice about. Either they could create a set of cars that they could sell in California and then 13 other states that went along with California and a different set of cars in the rest of the country, or let's just build one car we can sell everywhere so that California becomes the de facto regulator. And the Trump administration was furious about the idea that the states and the state of California in particular could effectively set national policy. Now, let me then take a look at how this spills over to COVID-19. Let me just pause you there one second, sure. Don, before we jump into that, because I just want to be clear about the waiver. What's the legal standing of the waiver? In other words, is this is an, an agreement um, between state and federal government that state will be allowed to have a more stringent set of policies and the federal government will then that's just okay, we'll honor that, or somehow it, it has legal standing to preclude lawsuits from people within a state who might say, no, I shouldn't be held to this higher standard, I should be allowed to revert to the federal standard. Yep, and, and the legal foundation is this. First of all, for example, in the, in the Clean Air Act, the Clean Air Act says that we will set certain standards that everybody's gotta follow. Then, in addition to that, there's a provision in the Clean Air Act that says that states that wanna experiment will be given the authority to be able to engage in those experiments as long as what they do is at least as tough as the federal standards, assuming that they can first apply for a waiver 
from the federal regulations and then be granted by that administratively. And for the most part, previous administrations up to this one had been pretty, pretty flexible about granting those waivers mm. for two reasons. One is everybody was curious to see what would happen if states would experiment. And secondly, the political forces behind it were strong and powerful. So it was difficult to stand in their way. So what has happened is that we've created the system of waivers across the country so that first, when it comes to air pollution, California is the de facto standard setting. When it comes to Medicaid, the waiver process within that program means that it's, it may be one program at the federal level, but in practice, it's 51 different programs because every state has chosen to administer it differently. And so there's a different cafeteria of Medicaid services that exist in every one of the 50 states in the District of Columbia. So that what we have is a, a basic set of, of legal standards that exist for everybody, but a set of inequality that develops in the way that states have chosen to implement it. Okay, thank you for taking me through that patiently because I didn't quite understand that, that part. So now bring us into the implications of that for where we are today. So that if we roll forward into the Affordable Care Act, that was set up in a way that not only gave the states the ability to decide whether or not to create their own their own exchanges, and if they didn't, then they would roll into the federal exchange, but also states had the, the choice of whether or not to expand their Medicaid programs to allow for a, a more expansive set of coverage that the federal government would pay for in large measure, not completely, but in large measure, so that for relatively low cost, they could expand healthcare to lower income Americans. So that seemed like, like why not go for that? And many states in fact did, but it also turns out that more conservative states in many cases did not because they were offended by the idea in principle about the Affordable Care Act. Uh, why, you might ask, might that matter when it comes to talking about COVID-19? And I was curious, so I, I took a look at the uh, states that decided to lock their economies down in March and compare that to their decisions about whether or not to expand Medicaid. And believe it or not, 87% of all the states that locked down in March also had decided to expand Medicaid. On the other hand, just 38% of the states that decided not to had expanded, that is decided not to lock down in March, also decided not to expand Medicaid. So there's a systematic difference here. It turns out the states that locked down early were also the states that expanded Medicaid. States that didn't lock down early didn't expand Medicaid. So it turns out that we have differences between the states and whether or not you were uh, subject to the lockdown also was product part and parcel of whether or not the state had previously decided whether or not to, uh, to, to engage in that kind of expansion lockdown, expansion Medicaid and lockdown of their economies. Related to that, you might say, well, maybe it's the case that the states that locked down early were just the places that had a more serious health problem. So I looked at that and looked at the, the death rates through uh, the middle of April, and it turns out that, yes, it's true that the states with the highest death rate also decided to lock down first. They were the ones where, where mm -hmm. COVID hit hardest and fastest. But for the rest of the states, you know what? There's just not that much of a difference in the death rate. And mm -hmm. so for the 40 states that were uh, in the, so after you go to the top 10 states with the highest death rate, the others, there's not that much of a difference in the decision of whether or not to lock down based on the death rate. So that there's something more going on here mm. than just a decision state by state about how best to try to respond. 
It had to do with this ongoing policy stream of which the decisions on the Affordable Care Act Medicaid expansion are just a part. Uh, this is a really important part of the story that I think we haven't paid much attention to yet. That's an amazing finding. Can you give me an example of a state or two that did not have a high number of cases and yet adopted the lockdown and that also had voted in the Medicare expansion? Because those are the tumblers you're lining up. Yeah, exactly. And I've, I've got to go back. I have to confess, it would take me a little while to try to pull that apart. Uh, you obviously have, have New York and New Jersey that had higher percentages at the beginning. And I've got, so I'd have to spend some time just pulling all those things apart. But uh, it turns out that just, uh, I can just retreat back into the numbers just for a second instead yeah. of examples of individual, individual states. But the, the states with the, with the lowest, uh, num lowest death rate, uh, five out of the 10 locked down in March. The states with the, the second highest death rate, uh, six out of the 10 March lockdown in March. So the fact is that uh, the death rate had very little to do with the decision to lock things down once you got past the top 10 states. I, so I would have to let, so first of all, that's, that's remarkable. And second of all, I can't wait to, to, to see how you're going to unpack that and write about that. I assume you're going to do that soon. That, that to me, what that means is then the, these sort of preconditions um, which may have to do with politics within the state, or it may have to do with sort of um, uh, commitments already made to the health system. I mean, I would, I would yeah. wonder sort of what the, the tell would be, particularly for let's say a swing state, a purple state that might have divided government. If they, my presumption is if they had adopted if, um, Medicare expansion and they had been putting money into their health system over the last 10, years and that infrastructure was there, then the momentum would be towards the lockdown, even right. if the indicator was not. Is that how you interpret yep. this? Exactly. And I've, I've got, uh, at the risk of boring everybody with more numbers, I've got even more numbers no. that are even uh, the, just as dramatic, I think. Our listeners uh, are, are, this is what they loved on. So go, <laughs> go for it. Yeah. So, so first of all, I mean, not surprisingly, again, these are all for the states that decided to lock down in March. They had a, an 8% lower popular vote for Trump. So they tended to be more red. But in addition to that, they had 44% higher public health spending per capita. 44% higher public health spending per capita. So that supports your hypothesis that the ones that intended to invest more in public health over the time were also more likely to lock down earlier. They tended to conduct more tests. But then in addition to that, they're part of a broader policy stream. They had higher eighth grade reading proficiency. They had a lower poverty rate. They even had a lower percentage of deficient bridges and a lower percentage of infant mortality. So that there are big and systematic differences between the states based on the decision of whether or not to lock the state down. Believe it, if, if, you, if you know whether or not a state locked down in March, you can tell a lot more about what the state was likely looking like. Now there's a lot of variation for sure, as is always the case among 50 states. But I was pretty stunned to discover such large and systematic differences between the states. Mm. And it's clear, and this is what is, for those of us interested in emergency management and for federalism, it's very clear that what's going on here in COVID-19 is not just about COVID-19, but it's about a much broader collection of policy issues.
people that you are listening to COVID calls. And my guest today is Don Kettle, and we're talking about federalism and history and COVID-19. So now we want to, I want to talk about that, Don, because, you know, one of the premises, I guess the central premise of your book is that the inequalities that are a result to this sort of turn, um, post-civil rights era turn to allowing states back into a more, let's say, individual mode where they can innovate on their own, um, has been inequalities, vast inequalities between the states. And you just gave a number of those interesting measures that I know you're interested in, health inequalities, educational attainment, infrastructure, investment and maintenance, and important to our discussion today, investments in the healthcare system broadly and health attainment for citizens. So we have that sort of set of inequalities. My understanding um, from your book, which was finished before COVID-19, is that um, that can't stand, that ultimately there will be events which will topple that, that those inequalities will ultimately out and bring great misery across the entire country. And now here we have this pandemic. I mean, is this how are you seeing the pandemic in light of that concern over inequality that you saw? Mississippi on one side, California on the other, or even maybe Florida on one side and California on the other. Yep. We can't uh, sustain and, it, can we? And we can't, I don't think. This is, uh, this is unfortunately, I've, I've, been, I've been torturing my editor uh, almost daily saying that just about every day there's, a, there's an epilogue to the book that reinforces this basic argument that you just made. That the problem is that it's increasingly the case that the government that we get depends on where we live. And not only is that true in policy terms, but it also is reinforcing political polarization because these inequalities are big drivers of the way in which we're fueling differences in the country. Differences not only between Washington and the states, between the states and, and each other, but also between the states and the local governments. And you can begin to see it as people are, are demonstrating demanding that the states be opened back up again because it's a reflection of the same kind of problem. Uh, this, is, this is not a prescription for stability. And there are two things here that strike me. One is that I don't recall that any other country in the world going through COVID-19 is having the same set of political battles that we're having. It's really a peculiar reflection of American federalism. And the second is that this clearly is not a good long-term strategy for national stability. The question is, are the things that we can do to try to pull things back together again? And the answer is yes, but I think we've lost a golden opportunity in the way in which we've approached COVID-19 because there, there was a moment where we could have said, we've got a national problem, requires a national solution. This is a virus that pays no attention to boundaries anywhere in the country and that every citizen, wherever they live, is going to be treated equally. Or we could have said, the federal government's not going to take a role. We're going to leave it up to the states and hope that the states can find a way to respond and then to discover that the states respond differently. So we could have gone the first road. Instead, we went to the second. And what we're doing in the process is taking all the ongoing sources of inequality that were already bubbling and throwing gasoline on those fires, which simply cannot be good for American democracy. I want to come back to Katrina here and your own thinking and writing about what was learned there and on our unique homeland uh, security emergency management system in America. And the way I read it is that we have, like in so many policy arenas in America, we've evolved a system that is respectful of federalism, has to be respectful of states, but ultimately 
provides enormous resources at the federal level, particularly in the policies arena that policy arenas that can any way be derived as sort of home, uh, national security, war making powers, um, crisis, this kind of thing. So if we think about the Stafford Act, um, and we've had Samantha Montano and I had Patrick Roberts on and we talked about, you know, the Stafford Act and you know, the Stafford Act is, is a piece of legislation that asks states to initiate the, the ask is supposed to come from the state to ask for help. But in reality, it's more complicated than that. And, and certainly in, in recent years, particularly I think after Katrina, the impulse was, you, we would wait for states to ask, but you're getting presidential disaster declarations before the disasters would even, were even hitting. So in a sense, it was a structure built up to respect states, but the federal government was primary. And we've erred on that side. If I hear you right, and this is what I, what I wonder about what are gonna be the implications of this, the Trump administration has for the first time gone the other direction. They're like, well, that's how the law is written. We'll wait for states to ask for help. And even if they ask for help, we may not be able to provide it. Yep, and it's that only more so, I think. Hmm. Uh, I think it's worth going back into Katrina and to, uh, to tell the, the story in terms of federalism in, a, in 10 seconds. The real problem was that faced with an enormous crisis, the city of New Orleans and the state of Louisiana were overwhelmed. And they struggled to try to find a way to respond, but it turns out that they couldn't. Then the federal government came in. FEMA, at its first blush, didn't prove very successful. Thad Allen was brought in and um, created a, a true national response to what was a regional disaster. And what were the lessons from that? I actually, I talked to a couple of very senior people in the Department of Homeland Security at the very end of the of Bush administration when they were feeling a little bit more relaxed and had a little bit more perspective. And I asked them, so what are the lessons that you really learned from that? And what they told me pretty bluntly was the next time something like that happens, we're gonna come in fast and we're gonna come in hard. We're not gonna wait for local governments and state governments to bungle the response because they almost took us down with it both policy terms and also right. in political terms. And so what they said is, we're, we're gonna come in fast, we're gonna come in hard. So what happened? The next time that it happened, it wasn't a Katrina, it was instead COVID-19. It wasn't just a regional issue, it was a national issue. It was Katrina a thousand times over, affecting every community in the country. And our response was what? What the people at the end of the Bush administration said are coming in fast and coming in hard? No, it was standing back and allowing the states to stand up and what we're having is some states responding remarkably well, but on the other hand, some states deciding either not to respond at all or to stand back, and we're getting wildly different responses in different states in ways that are going to cause, I, I fear, enormous problems, not only in terms of public health, because the virus by no means is beaten and is, runs the risk of, of bouncing back in ways that are unpredictable, but also in terms of our economy, because the problem is that even if you, you open a shopping mall in Georgia, that it still runs the risk of whether or not you feel safe and getting on a plane in Minneapolis, connecting through Atlanta and going someplace else. And so we've got this national interconnection of the economy that has to depend on confidence that, that everybody's got their act together. And so that's the next phase of what's coming. And I suspect it's gonna be an unpleasant story. Well, I, I've, I've often, um, it's a sort of a parlor game with, with people in, who know about this kind of stuff. And I play this game and I'll ask you, do you think if Hurricane Katrina had asked, had happened in 2004, do you think 
Bush would have been reelected. No, and in fact, one of the things, uh, my, my favorite, I, I love this parlor game, and my favorite statistic on that is that the point at which Bush's negative numbers exceeded his positives and never recovered was not after mission accomplished on the aircraft carrier, not after any of the other policy problems that he had, but it was in the aftermath of Katrina. Right. His negatives exceeded his positives. If you look at the poll results, he never recovered, and he never would have been reelected if that had happened. So with that in mind, and I think that you, you said the officials you talked to, they're cognizant of that too. I mean, you know, the cause and effect of poor presidential leadership with the effect uh, at the ballot box is not, you don't have to be a political scientist to understand that. So I'm gonna ask a question and I have to, I mean, I, I don't know what kind of uh, caveats and provisos I can put out there, but why is Donald Trump different now? Why does he view this differently? Is he not worried? I think uh, he's terrified. Mm -hmm. And if you read the, the articles in the newspaper daily, he's having screaming matches with his political advisors. He's furious that the states are in a position of embarrassing him. But he's had, a, on the other hand, a, a couple of very careful, very studied, very systematic responses to this politically. On the one hand, he has had no interest whatsoever in owning the problem in any respect either in owning the diagnosis of the problem or owning the response. On the other hand, he has a very clear interest in taking, a, a, taking credit for any kind of positive steps. So whether it's hydrochloroquine or whether it's the possibility of, of a vaccine or whether it's the possibility of injecting bleach, if there's any possibility of any kind of having something positive, it's something that he wants to take credit for. So it's, there's a very systematic and studied reaction that he's had to this. He doesn't want to own the problem, he wants to own the solution. He doesn't want to own the onus for the, having had the problem occur, he wants to own the credit for having solved it. And so that's in many ways shaped the way in which the entire federal government has responded from the very beginning. But the problem is that the problem itself doesn't allow you the luxury of, of picking and choosing what it is that, that, you, that, you, that you deal with there. And, it's also clear that at the state and local level where the rubber's hitting the road, that officials there are, I think, uh, in many cases, I think being viewed as champions by their citizens for, uh, for in fact, owning both pieces of the puzzle. And that's where I think that looking down the, lo the road that the, that the politics this is most gonna shake out. Is Trump gonna be able to pivot carefully and quickly enough to be able to find ways of, of embracing a set of successes for which he can take credit and hope that and people will, will not remember the earlier stages where he deliberately and consciously, and I think very skillfully, found a way to try to, to duck the, the diagnosis of the problem to begin with. Is it the case then, and coming back to your, the premise of your book, that the inequalities between states have, have reached a point um, in which the expectations of federal response are so low that, um, that he might not pay an electoral price for this. In other words, I mean, people in, uh, let's say, red states that supported uh, Trump very strongly in 2016, who, and I've seen some polling on this, rate his performance just fine, and they particularly like the restraint of his, of his performance. Whereas in other states like Connecticut or New York or New Jersey, there's already been a turn not to trust the, the Trump administration on this, 
And so their trust has now moved over into, into state government. I mean, it seems like it's almost a, a, an underlining of the prophecy of your book to a certain degree. Well, and it, the, if you think about this purely in political terms from Trump's point of view, uh, what are the political implications of attacking California and New York? And the answer is he's attacking voters he's never going to win in the interest of trying to attract the base that he hopes to be able to convince. And not to be too cynical about it, but that's clearly what the strategy is. And, but the problem is that that strategy doesn't quite get you enough electoral votes. And so you'd need to win a collection of, of swing state votes as well, and we know what they are. And the problem is that some of them have now, especially in Michigan, for example, have had tremendous problems of having hotspots build up. And the, the strategy of attacking the Michigan's governor and the, the risk of not seeming to care about the, the hotspots in Michigan really run the risk of, of, of tipping the crucial swing states that he most needs to, to win. So that's the, the political consequence that lurks in the, over the horizon for the strategies that he's chosen. There's politically very little to be, to be lost by attacking blue states. There is something to be said for attacking the blue states by picking up support of the red states who don't like the blue states to begin with. Let's remember that the early stages of this, uh, he's, it really seemed like a blue state problem. It started off, of course, in, in Washington state and then spread to California and then turned out to be fierce in New York and then Connecticut and New Jersey. So it's, you know, it's these crazy Democrats and their policies that are responsible for this problem. And they're the ones who have overreacted. You don't need to overreact quite as much where you live because it's really their kind of problem. And it's probably the fault of the Chinese anyway to begin with. I mean, it's, a, it's a very conscious, very careful, very calculated strategy. But the problem is that it, it may not work politically because it may not be enough to win the swing states. But in the longer term, what this clearly does is to drive even deeper divisions between the states in a, in a way that is... Uh, unprecedented, as best I can tell. We have a, a coalition of Western states, a coalition of Midwestern states, and a coalition of, of Northeastern states that have decided to band together because they don't trust the federal government and they're going to coordinate their own response. Uh, this, this isn't quite the point of having an internal civil war, but it certainly doesn't help things any, and it doesn't draw the country any closer together. I wanted to ask you about that, and if you'd ever seen anything like that, that in the absence of federal leadership or resources that states had gone into sort of what are in effect multi-state compacts, basically to share medical resources, ex expertise, decision-making, and to band together in what are gonna be quite crucial decisions over the next 18 months about opening and reopening. And we're gonna be in a period of back and forths there. Have you ever seen anything like that before? No, I've never seen anything remotely like that. We, we've had a couple of discussions in the past about whether or not we need to have mega states and having I mean, essentially states that act and, 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 and behave together. We've had organizations like the Tennessee Valley Authority that have been multi-state compacts. And of course we have regional authorities like the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey and the, Port of, and the authority that operates uh, SEPTA in Philadelphia. So we've, we've got these operational things, but nothing on this kind of a political scale involving such large numbers of states over such a large collection of policies. So this is, as best I can tell, unprecedented, and it's precisely the kind of thing that the founders really had thought about and worried a lot about. They, they really worried about the kind of forces that could tear the country apart, and the thing that really worried them more than anything else, after they got past the worry that if you lived in the South, that the North was going to rule the roost and vice versa, 
was that there would be regions of the country that would shred the Union. We saw the cost of that in the Civil War, and there was pretty much a consensus after that 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 was not good and we shouldn't allow that to happen again. But in fact, there are forces that are, that are moving politically in very much the same kind of way now, not over slavery, but now over this question about public health. I want to remind people that you're listening to COVID calls and talking to Don Kettle about federalism and COVID-19. So um, your book and your work in general is not all bad news, Don. I think you tend to be an inherently pretty optimistic and solutions-oriented person, as I know you. So uh, Dr. Fauci and others responsibly have told us the uh, remedies and palliatives for the public health disaster that we find ourselves in. I'm not sure every state will follow them. Um, but um, do the same for us in our polity. What are the steps that we can take to begin to alleviate this problem, which is so manifest in front of us right now, this breakdown between the states and the federal government? Yeah, I, I am basically an optimist, although it may not be obvious from the conversation here today, which is so tough because it's such a tough issue. But uh, in, in my book, The Divided States of America, I look at the end about what we can do about it. And I think that what it really is going to take is, even though we've had these battles between the Madisonian and the Hamiltonian forces for now 230 years, we need a touch more Hamiltonianism, I think. We need to have a, a set of things that at least we agree as a country we want to accomplish as a country, that we need to have a federal government that doesn't dictate, but which at least provides the resources to shape our policy and our behavior in a way that tries to help reduce the inequalities that we have among the states. And that means strategies of federal grants that help to even out some of the inequalities. I think we, we need to back away a little bit from giving everybody a little bit of everything. And politically, it's not easy, but, but to focus instead on trying to help level out the differences between the states. I think you can see in the way in which Fauci is approaching this issue that we've got a, an expert who's talking about a, a strategy that needs to be national in scope and that needs to be then delivered in a way that works locally. And so it doesn't mean a kind of overbearing national kind of government, but it does mean, you know, what we probably need to do is to figure out who needs the ventilators most, where testing most needs to be deployed. We don't need to open up all the country all at the same time, and we shouldn't think about that. But as we open the country up, where can we do it most safely and what are the standards? How are we gonna have the testing protocols? And, and oh, by the way, when we're talking about tests, uh, what is the test? How are we gonna measure the tests? Are we gonna measure the tests the same way? And if somebody says we have X percent of the tests that are positive in the state of Georgia, are we sure that we're measuring it the same way in other states? And the answer is no. One of our basic problems is we don't have a basic common language. And so one of the keys to allowing a substantial amount of federalism to operate in this country is to ensure that at least we have a common language and the things that matter and have to level out the differences between the states. And, and that's the piece that we've lost, but that's the opportunity we have now to grab. Mm, then that's, um, to, to me, there's a bit of a bind here, I think, particularly for people who, let's say, environment or, or health have been really important because we've cheered on California We've cheered on New York. I've cheered on New Jersey states that have gone beyond the sort of federal minimums in clean air and clean water and health provision. And even back into the progressive era and looking at states like New York and Maryland and Massachusetts that led the way for laws that became federal law. Um, but it seems like, you know, some of the compromise that's going to be necessary, it's going to cut 
both ways, right? In some states, the politics is going to have to become much more about, no, there's a basic minimum and we're not there and we have to accept that. And there's other states, um, not that they're going to decrease their standards, but I, I just, I don't know how this is going to work out, but it just, it feels like people in, in states like California and Connecticut are going to have to find a way to reach out more to people who live in states that don't have those minimums. I, what is that mechanism, though, in our culture? I mean, we're not neighbors yeah. between Alabama and Connecticut. Yeah, but, but first of all, you're absolutely right, because it's one of these issues of living by the sword and dying by the sword. Right. It's, uh, one cannot applaud, for example, the, the efforts of California in environmental policy and at the same time to, to complain about efforts of re on reproductive rights for red states, that the way in which that's happening. You, you can't applaud the way in which uh, Connecticut is trying to advance some certain kinds of environmental standards and at the same time criticize Texas for leading the, the effort to try to, to kill the Affordable Care Act. Uh, you, the, if, to the degree to which you're going to applaud the efforts of individual states to step forward, you have to be willing to deal with the consequences and not just pick and choose the policy results that some states produce. Uh, it's pretty clear that we've gotten to the point where these relying on the states to take the lead in, these, in this laboratories of democracy model, which works great in determining what works, isn't great for setting national policy. And, and on this point, I think Trump has got a point that allowing states to set, individual states to set national policy runs the risk of, of ramming a set of, uh, of policies down everybody's throat for which there's not national consensus. Now, of course, the answer to that is, well, get a national consensus, and that's the one thing we're not very good at. The thing that's clear is we're not gonna get any better at it by continuing to drive these deep divisions. And what we're gonna have to get is a set of a, a growing national consensus on those things that in fact must be national policies. And that means that we have to be much more careful about picking our battles, not on every issue on every time, but to try to at least determine what are those things where we want to ensure we have greater equality and use that to try to drive national policy. Uh, having said that, I recognize just how incredibly difficult that is. And yeah. every step we take down the road that we're on now is making it more difficult to try to get there. Uh, in some ways, though, the founders would have recognized this. This was part of what it is that cost Hamilton his life in the duel, mm. on top of the fact that he was often pretty obnoxious, too, on top of that. And that's one of the reasons why he and Burr ended up in, in the fight that they had. But over time, uh, we've, we've had the same basic struggle between the Hamiltonian forces for, for picking our shots that we want to make sure are national and making sure that we have enough local discretion to try to fit those national circumstances to our local conditions. And though if we were in the middle of a tough battle, it's because we've been at this for 230 years and we keep going at it, but continuing to go at it the way we're doing now is not a good strategy for long-term stability of the American Democratic Republic. Well, disasters often reveal uh, long-term conflicts that are in place that seem intractable because they, um, and disasters sometimes create new political formulations as well, and, and often they're doing the same simultaneously. I'm thinking of the Civil War, I'm thinking of the Great Depression, I'm thinking even of the end of the Cold War. Do you, do you think, well, I think it's fair to say this is one of those kind of shocks, but you know, looking towards, I mean, this is an election year. Uh, is an election and a change of government um, from one party to the other 
enough to actually bring about the kind of reform you're talking about? Or is this going to have to be something bigger than a single election? And if so, what, what does that look like? Well, the, the, the two points here, the first, as you, as you point out, is that uh, disasters have a way of focusing the mind. We can have all these debates in a kind of very broad academic kind of sense, but when either uh, your house is underwater in a hurricane or you're trying to decide whether or not you can get your economy back on track again and whether or not you run the risk of having, having grandma in the nursing home be subject to a, a virus that could prove fatal, uh, the, these disasters tend to focus our minds on these kinds of things. And so it provides an opportunity for, for having the kind of debate that we might otherwise be able to duck. Uh, the question is whether or not a, an election can turn things around. And the thing that I'm pretty certain about is that if Joe Biden is elected, what will happen is that we'll find exactly the same kinds of battles that are being fought in the reverse kind of way. And because the Democrats are not going to forget what it is that, that Trump tried to do to them and the temptation to try to go back and do it to the red states at the same time is going to be irresistible. The red states are going to be furious for having lost their, their champion for these kinds of fights. And we're likely to continue these battles in ways that are only going to make things worse unless we say, look, there's some things that we, that we just can't afford to allow happen. And it's, it is a, a challenge to the kind of leadership that not just in one election, but over a series of elections, that's a matter of rebuilding trust, not just in terms of rhetoric, but in terms of producing results. It's a way of trying to make sure that we focus on the kind of outcomes that Americans care about and devising a system that focuses on that. That's what it is that we need to try to try to deal with. And, and the good news in all of this is that I've done some research on the issue of trust in government. And it turns out that, that people just don't much like the federal government. They don't much trust it. They certainly don't trust Congress. But it turns out that, you know what, when it comes to local governments and getting the kind of individual services that they like and care about, when that works, they notice it, they care about it, and they trust it. So that it's possible to rebuild trust transaction by transaction, by dealing with citizens as they are and where they sit. And so that the key, if there's a strategy that can work from the national level, is to focus on that transactional level and hear the challenges that we have on public health provide an unprecedented opportunity for doing just that. So even though it's a difficult situation, that's the ray of hope that shines through here, I think. I think that's, that to me is an important insight and it makes me wonder um, what kind of innovations we're going to need at agencies like Health and Human Services or uh, at FEMA, the Department of Homeland Security, to try to accomplish just that, you know? And I think we've seen moments at time when there was great creativity. I mean, certainly the people I know who work at FEMA, they work hard. And a lot of their work, and it's an under-resourced agency, and a lot of their work is at the extremely local level. But somehow that is not received, you know, that's the work that's not been valorized in Washington as strongly as it should. And I think we're seeing that with HHS and CDC. I mean, these are the agencies that should shine in a moment like this that allow people to say, oh, I didn't, you know, yeah, I hate Congress, but, you know, I like James Lee Witt or I like Craig Fugate, you know, or I like, you know, um, I, I think it's too early to say about Gaynor's response right yeah. now, but is that possible to like these agencies again after this? Well, what is, but, but let me frame the FEMA question in particular in a way that I know is a debate going on inside the agency, which is just how big should FEMA be? Right. Should, is FEMA best as a kind of larger, more muscular agency that has the capacity to step in and be able to deliver goods and services and 
be able to step in wherever it's needed? Or is it, is it best by, by shrinking it and making it more nimble and more potent by being able to focus itself on leveraging resources more? That's a basic strategic choice that FEMA's in the process of trying to think through. And frankly, I don't think it, it knows for itself where it is it wants to go, but its process of trying to sort that out, I think is gonna be the best way to try to answer the question that you just raised. So last question, we're up on time. Um, you've already started your COVID-19 book? <laughs> no, I've, I've thought about it. I've, I've started a dozen different COVID-19 books. Yeah. And the, the challenge is that it's trying to figure out what it is that we, that we need to learn from this. The, the thing that strikes me is that the most important way to understand COVID-19 is that COVID-19 is not about just COVID-19. It sits in a very much broader policy stream that is part of an ongoing set of political forces and policy decisions that have shaped the way the country's responded. And on the other hand, it has a, going to be casting a much longer shadow that's going to last long, long, long after the immunizations are out and we feel safe about going out again. So uh, whatever the next book is, is somehow understanding what it is that COVID-19 tells us about where have we been, but more importantly, where we need to go. And those questions I think are about as important as any that face the country right now. I wanna remind people that COVID calls happens every weekday at 5 p.m. and tomorrow I'll be talking about labor and the pandemic with Eileen Boras, Silvia Federici, and Juliana Feliciano Reyes. Don Kettle, thank you so much. Um, sorry we couldn't have this conversation as we customarily would uh, over a cup of coffee, but I appreciate all the <laughs> hard work you're doing. I look forward to you know reading your analysis. Those numbers that you were talking about earlier are just really important to our understanding, and this is a slow disaster. It's gonna be playing out for a little while. So thanks, Don, for all you do. It's a pleasure exploring this issue that I talked about in the divided states of America. It's the, the challenge is making sure that states are, don't get even more divided in the process. So I really appreciate the chance to be able to talk with you, Scott, and to be able to share some of these ideas with all your listeners out there. Thanks so much. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow at five o'clock. Thanks. <laughs>